Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Hello, and thank you for checking out the podcast. Please rate the podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast. And now, the podcast. Right now, joining us is uh, Dr. Rowan Sawatsky. Good afternoon, doctor. Hello, how are you? Great. Thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate it. You're the curator of history at the Manitoba Museum, and you've got a really cool exhibit there right now, Vikings of the First World War Icelandic Canadians in Service. Tell us about it. Yes, indeed. It's uh, it's really a commemoration of uh, the Icelandic Canadians, Icelandic Manitobans who served during uh, the First World War. Yeah, and so I know you've got a bunch of cool stuff uh, with the exhibit. Uh, I want to talk about that, but maybe tell us a bit about the story. How how did what was their path uh, as they uh, went on to help fight the First World War? Mm-hmm. Well, the uh, the Icelandic, uh, Icelandic people first settled in in Manitoba in the 1870s and uh, formed a, a very uh, large community here, uh, from Gimli all the way down into Winnipeg, Selkirk, uh, surrounding areas. And uh, they did very well for themselves here. And when uh, the First World War broke out, um, many of them, you know, they sort of debated what to do. And uh, may, But the overwhelming response was that they wanted to serve their country. And mm. so they uh, formed a couple of battalions, one of which was called uh, the Vikings of Canada. Yeah. And uh, maybe talk about the exhibit uh, a bit, because I, I know you've you got a, a hockey jersey, don't you? That's right. We have a replica hockey jersey of the Winnipeg Falcons, and that was the uh, the famous Icelandic Manitoban uh, hockey team that formed here in Winnipeg. And uh, after the war, they reformed and went to Antwerp and won the first Olympic gold for hockey in the world. Uh, and an interesting thing, when we had the uh, opening night, there was um, an elderly woman who I spoke to, and there was one gentleman who didn't go to the Olympics because his wife in 1920 was expecting a baby. And, uh, and that baby grew up, and that woman who I was talking to was that baby, and she's now in her late 90s. Isn't that interesting, eh? And you mm-hmm. knew nothing mm-hmm. of that. I didn't. No, I didn't know that she would be at the opening, so it was, it was really nice to have her there. Wow, yeah. I know you've got some medals of uh, that belong to Sir William Stevenson. Tell me a bit about him. Right, there's a big personality. Uh, Sir William Stevenson um, served uh, during the First World War. He was Icelandic, born in Winnipeg, and, uh, and then he was adopted. Uh, he was born to an Icelandic mother, adopted by an Icelandic family, grew up in Winnipeg, um, joined the, first, uh, joined the uh, Canadian Expeditionary Forces, eventually became a pilot, uh, took down 12 um, enemy planes with his Sopwith Camel in the First World War, and then he went on to become spy master for uh, North America and England uh, during the Second World War and helped defeat the Nazis. Isn't that something, eh? And tell us about mm-hmm. the Einerson brothers. Right, so those are the artifacts we have in the exhibit. We have artifacts from three brothers, Joe, John, and Vili, who were Einersons um, from Canada. They grew up in Saskatchewan, but they joined up in Manitoba, and then they all served overseas. And uh, John uh, died there. He, he was hit by a shell, but the other two brothers were able to return. And so we have items belonging to each of them related to their war experience. And you've got uh, uh, videos, and, I mean, you guys do it right when you do exhibits like this. And so I wanted to get, I wanted to get you on because... 
you know, we're coming up on Remembrance Day and there are, uh, listen, these stories, it's important that we tell, keep telling these stories. Maybe talk a bit about that, Roland. Right. And, you know, it's a big, it's a big Remembrance Day for us. This is the 100th anniversary of the end of the First World War. And mm-hmm. this is where our Remembrance Day as we know it comes from. Um, so, uh, you know, the poppy comes from the First World War. Uh, the Remembrance Day services on the 11th are related to the armistice that was signed on the 11th day of the 11th month. Uh, so it's a really big one to rem- for us to remember. And getting to the stories of the individuals, I think, is what really matters here. Their experiences, their hopes, um, how they integrated back into Canadian society. And uh, if and when they died, then what was, how did that impact uh, their families? So there's lots of um, stories to learn out there. And, you know, for some of us, that's our own history, too. You know, it could be our great-grandfather, could be our grandfather. In some cases, it might be, if you're older, it might be your father as well. Yeah. And I think it's important to tell the the Manitoba and Winnipeg stories, right? I mean, it's just, uh, it's so long ago. um, You know, as you said, some of us have connections. My grandfather, actually, Hawken Anderson, fought for the Americans in the uh, the First World War. And I just recently made a trip home. My mom sold her house and I brought back a lot of my grandfather's uh, uh, war artifacts. And so, um, yeah, if you have a connection... Great, but if you don't, it's important to learn these stories and continue to to carry them on. And I think you guys are doing a great job at the museum of that. Mm-hmm. And I agree. I mean, even if that's not your own personal background, it's important to know that story of the First World War and what it meant to Canada. Yeah, Dr. Roland Sawatsky, thank you for telling us a bit about it. I appreciate it. My pleasure. <laughs> All right, so we've got a new global news reporter uh, here in town. Um, his name is Merrick Takash, and he is here now. Hello, Merrick. Hello, Hal. How you doing? Excellent. Did you think you'd be, when you came to Winnipeg, you're supposed to report on stories, not become a story. <laughs> That's not the first time I've heard that, actually. <laughs> I'm so. sure it's not. I'm not very original. Um, you can see the story at cjob.com. You haven't even been in town a week. Nope. You were here Four days when this happened, your yep. second day at work, tell us what happened to well, you. Well, I was walking to work. I actually viewed an apartment in Norwood Flats, uh, right across that St. Mary's Bridge. That I really liked the apartment, so yep. I, I, I didn't really know the area, so I didn't know where exactly to cross the street, and it turns out I didn't even need to cross the street where I got hit. <laughs> But I crossed the street right uh, towards downtown underneath that train bridge by Stradbrook. Yeah. And I uh, I was on the phone to the landlord. He, he was asking me how things went. And I said, sure, let's let's do a follow-up tonight. Yeah. And boom, I got hit by an SUV um, on the side. He ran over my front leg with, uh, or my left leg, uh, rather, uh, with his front and back tires. And then uh, the landlord actually thought I got shot or something. Because you're on the phone. Yeah, I was on the phone and he heard he heard a big, some curse words and he, and uh <laughs> girls coming over and yelling, are you okay? Are you okay? So he actually hung up. I think he called the police and, and there was an ambulance and police and fire. And I didn't even know what was really going on. I looked down and yeah, saw, saw and... the wreckage and my pants were trimmed because the guy had uh, studded winter tires. So, I mean, <laughs> it was it was quite the morning and I didn't really settle down until I was in the hospital. My godmother met me at the hospital after all my tests. And I know I remember in the ambulance, the first curse, uh, person I called was my news director um, because and they wouldn't they didn't even want me to touch my phone because I was in a neck brace and um, but you're worried about checking in with the new boss well I remembered uh, that too and I got mad at them because they wanted to cut my dress shirt and my tie and I said no I, <laughs> I, 
I, I took, it, took it off myself, but they obviously had to cut my dress pants off because yeah. I it, I couldn't move my legs. And wow. I would, it was super scary. <laughs> no I, kidding. They told me to wiggle my toes. I couldn't. And I was like, uh, my second day of work in Winnipeg, fourth day in Winnipeg, I slept in Winnipeg for four nights and I'm in the back of a hospital thinking I'm paralyzed. So Welcome to Winnipeg. <laughs> eh? By the way, I should have done that right off the hop. Welcome to Winnipeg. <laughs> for sure. It will get better, Merrick. I, I hope promise. So. I yeah. promise it'll get better. I've got a, everyone online has been awesome since my story went up today. A lot, lots of encouraging messages. And, and like I said, one of the things that kept me going, laying on the street there and in the ambulance and even in the hospital, just how nice um, the people here are and um, the people that pulled over to help and just asking me if I was okay. So many questions taking my mind off the incident. So that was awesome to see. Yeah. I really yeah. encourage you to go and read Merrick's story at cgob.com. It's very well written. You told a great story. Um, and in the story, you talk and you just mentioned it, but people were great. Eh? You're laying on the ground. You've mm-hmm. obviously been hurt. Could have been much worse. He could have killed you. I mean, really? I mean, I, did, I saw, I think about it now. I saw, I looked up at the walk light because I saw he wasn't stopping. And if I hadn't have looked up at the walk light in rear view mirror, I, I probably would have been able to get out of the way. But I was crossing. He was coming from my right. And I turned back to the left because I was only two steps away from the curb. So if I hadn't made that, the paramedic said, if I hadn't have made that last minute to effort to get yeah. out of the way I either w- would have went under the car or through his windshield yeah. and I mean I got a call from the police out this the guy who hit me was actually pretty pretty up there in age he was 85 years old oh wow so so I mean um and it, we don't know at this point if charges or anything is is going to happen and... no I'm supposed to follow up with the police this week I mean it, it, I got the feeling from him that he he was really in shock when, when he uh when he got out of his car he yeah. he couldn't believe but you it. had the walk light yeah, I had yeah. the. I definitely had the walk light. Wow. Um, but I mean, I'm not. No hard feelings or yeah. anything. I mean, it happens. I mean, I would have been in shock if I was him too. So. Well, and you had uh, made quite a trip from Terrace, BC. That's twenty eight hours, Hal. Wow. Twenty eight well, hours. I've driven about half that because I'm from Alberta, so I I know half that trip. Yep. But uh, you made a long trip. You got here. You were excited. You found an apartment, and then bam. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. It's been quite the start. I mean, I, I've get, I've gotten to know uh, the medical professionals and physiotherapists <laughs> and how here were already. They? So. How were they, Merrick? Oh, awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Every, every I, try, I tried when I was on the hospital, um, in the hospital, getting transferred a bunch of times to be extra nice and extra, extra positive because yeah. I know those guys, what those guys have to deal with on a daily basis. But it, yeah. was, it was awesome. My experience yeah. was great. Well, I'm so glad you're okay because it could have been a lot worse. And we're excited to have you on the Global News team and it's been nice having you around CJOB today. And again, I encourage people to go and read your story at CJOB.com. Awesome. Yeah, Thank you so much, Thanks for Al. telling us about it. For sure. This whole half hour is Carolyn Klassen's half hour from Connexus Counseling. It's Thursday, so Carolyn joins us. Hello, how are you? Hey, it's great to be with you. You look beautiful today. My gosh, you got a beautiful red top on and a colorful scarf. And Thank you. Can't miss me. I figure if we're going to enjoy winter, we're going to do it with color, right? There you go. Yep. My mother-in-law... Uh, has always told my wife, Jackie, and she always tells me too, she said, you know, there are days where you just don't feel good or whatever, but you always got to look good. Look good and you'll feel good. So Okay. Well, and I, my thinking is I tend to go towards navies and blacks and grays. and Yeah, me too. But, but I find winter so black and white. Yeah. And I'm like, why don't I contribute towards it not being quite so there you go. dreary? Yep. Well, you have done it today. Thank you. You have done it today. So how was Halloween? Did you have lots of kids at your house, by the way? About average number. Yeah. Yeah. We were prepared for a few more and, and le- if they would come, but I just find the whole thing so adorable, right? The, yeah. It's just so much fun to see people come. And um, what I loved was 
so like the parents come with the kids, right? They stay yeah. at the end of the sidewalk and these kids have a chance to practice their independence because right. they go up to the stairs all by themselves and mm-hmm. they ring the doorbell or yell. And then most of them say thank you and a couple of them have to be reminded. And right. some of them are saying, have a good evening, right? Like yeah. they are just, they have a chance to engage yeah. with adults and look us in the eye. And mm-hmm. and some like to put their hand in the bowl sometimes. Others will be a little hanging back and kind wait for Kind of shy, yeah. 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 And so it's just a chance for kids to practice being a little bit, it's just, when else do you get a chance to knock on neighbor's doors and look adults in yeah, the eye, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wanted to ask you, like, what what do we do with all this candy, right? Because, um, you know, I think we want kids to have fun and we want them to enjoy some of the candy. Right. But, I mean, they come home with a huge bag full. What do you do with it, Carolyn? Do you put it in the freezer and let them enjoy it over the year? Or do you say half is going to, you know, I don't know. What do you do? Well, it's a good question because, you know, I know that I give away more to each kid than I would have ever gotten from the average household right. as a kid, right? Yeah. Um, people are just, the stand, it seems like the standard of what, what is expected has gone up. And so the pillowcases get fuller and fuller and there's only so much candy a kid needs to eat, right? right. So that's a challenge. And I think every parent has to decide what's best for their kid. For some mm. kids, it's a really good chance for them to say, so here's your candy. How are you going to um, use it in a way that you don't get sick by it? And so yeah. that the kids have a chance to self-monitor, and that works with some kids. Other kids, you just know you're setting them up to get sick if you give them that. That does not work with some adults, <laughs> That's let right. alone kids. Exactly. Like, don't let me self-control <laughs> because there's none there. And so some kids, that's not the right challenge. No. And so then you have to figure out how to have them ask you politely for a candy regularly, but not yeah. too often, and so yeah. then you sort of meet them out. One of the things we often did with our kids was we just wanted our kids to learn from a very early age the value of generosity because mm-hmm. we know that money doesn't make people happy except when they give it away. We know that people that are more generous that are funds, they have greater life satisfaction, and so we wanted to teach our kids to be generous, and so we had our kids from a very early age before they, sometimes we would almost have to say, you don't have to give all of it away because mm-hmm. they just, they have so much fun giving that we would invite them to portion a pile off um, and then we would take it to a place where there would might be, we took it to a church because we said, you know, maybe some of the mummies or daddies are going to yeah. come in and see the pastor and they're going to be sad and they're mm-hmm. going to bring a kid in and that kid might like a snack to eat while That's the grownups idea. are doing something. Yeah. And so it was a way for them to contribute because sometimes kids don't earn salaries. How can they give of their own yeah. away, right? And this mm-hmm. is something that they worked out last night, that they went from door to door, they got it themselves, and now this is a chance for them to practice generosity with other people. And then you also have less at home to sort of figure out what to do with. I know, yeah, for everybody. For not everybody. just Not just the kid, but for everybody, right? <laughs> yeah, because when the parents tuck it away so that the kids don't have it all at once, who are we kidding, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, really? <laughs> You mean my parents were pulling pulling that on me all those years? Really? (laughs) You know what? I always just, uh, it was funny because I like candy, but I always just like looking at the bag going, look at all. Like, you know, it wasn't even about, I cared, I didn't really care to eat it all. It was just that I got that much. I accomplished that. Some dentists, I knew you'd you'd have good answers, you know, and those are great answers that you gave on what to do with all the Halloween candy. Um, I read that some dentists are paying kids, like, I'll give you, you know, $5 a pound for your candy, like whatever. Right. And that's kind of interesting too, because then they can take the money, the candy's out of the house, they Uh, can enjoy some. 
But then, you know, maybe mom and dad do that. I'll buy your candy off you or I, I don't know. But uh, I, I like your answers, though. It is fun. It's an extravagance of riches, right? When you dump out yeah. that pillowcase and your parents sort through to make sure it's safe. And then you have like just gobs of candy at a yeah. level that any other time of year would be ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Don't let me forget, we want to talk about your Rising Strong workshop. So we're going to do that before uh, the end. And grab a paper and pen if you want to jot down details. We'll have those for you because I, I know Carolyn wants to mention that. But uh, tell me about the Maya method. What is the M-A-Y-A? What is the Maya method? This is about raising hardworking kids? Well, what they recognized was that in certain parts of Mexico, um, in the indigenous communities, that kids tended to be more helpful and they did things without being asked. And these were fairly young children. They just sort of participated in the household activities and they looked and they found out what was it that had these kids be so innately helpful um, and they didn't see doing tasks around the house as chores that they didn't like. They just saw those things as things to be done. And they looked at what was going on and what they realized was that those mothers, they called them super moms, um, these super moms, what they did was they encouraged kids even from one to three to participate in chores, mm. um, even though the toddlers were incompetent. And so the idea is, is how do you get kids to not see work as something that you have to do when you get older that you don't like, but work as something you do together with other people. And when you do it together, it's actually quite fun. Mm. And so that... the. The upside is you teach your children from a very early age to participate in chores so that when they get older, it just comes naturally to them. The downside is is that when you're including children age one to three in chores is it's actually more work to include well, them yes. than to not include them. Exactly. Right? And so that's a competition in our day. And so one of the uh, competition inside of, of a parent of I can do this in two minutes once the kid goes down or it'll take me 15 minutes with the kid being up. Mm-hmm. And, and often the temptation is I'll quickly get it done when the child goes down for a nap. Yeah. Um, but there was the writer of this article that noticed this research in, of mothers in Mexico. She tried it with her two-year-old. And what she found was, was that this two-year-old, she learned that if you do something with mommy, it's fun. And mm. so she says, the shirts aren't folded as well. Um, there's lower quality. That We've broken a dish or two here or there. But this child is learning from a very early age that working together and collaborating in partnership to get things done around the house is just normal and natural. And it's not a chore in terms of something you don't like. It's something that you do together and you have fun doing it. I think it's interesting, too, looking at how this is in Mexico, looking at how different cultures handle things like this, right? Like mm-hmm. family dynamics. I find that interesting. Like my wife is, uh, my wife's mother came from Kenya. Okay. And so my wife is a first generation uh, Canadian Kenyan. Okay. And just the way their, rela- their mother-daughter relationship is different because of where uh, Taffy, that's my wife's mom, came from. Just compare. It's just interesting seeing the different cultures and and how uh, they treat each other and how they work and work together and take care of each other and. Well, and that's that's the beauty of this age is we can look around and see what other cultures are doing because we have contact with those cultures and we can learn from mm. people doing things differently. One of the things that I saw when um, my children were quite young was I went over to somebody's house and instead of having her plates and cups and. Uh, glasses up on sort of above the kitchen counter where most people have their dishes. She had them at knee height on the bottom cupboards. Hmm. And that allowed her children that were just a year or two old to empty the dishwasher. And so I saw that and we did that, you know, from the time that my kids could walk, they were emptying the dishwasher and we would all do it together and it was kind of fun. And so they didn't know that 
emptying the dishwasher was work was at that work, age. Yeah. It was just something we did together. And often when kids are, little kids are doing work, you kind of make it into a game, you kind of make it fun, and you sing or you dance or you talk about whatever mm-hmm. as it goes along. And so it ceases to become work. It just becomes something you do. Yeah. This is, brings on another uh, issue here, another question that I have a hard time with. Uh, not that I have kids, but that I would... I. It, it's funny because I often say when I think about being a parent, it makes me nervous. I get sweaty and I'm not even, I don't even have these a kid. These hypothetical children stress yes, you these out. hypothetical, <laughs> damn hypothetical kids. Um, what do you do with uh, allowance now? Like is is there, should these kids not be doing this stuff without expecting payment or should we be paying them for their chores or get into that for me a bit? Well, in our house, we've separated allowance and chores because if you live in the household, you participate in household activities, mm. um, the the fun ones and the chore ones, um, and that's you don't get paid for it. You you that's just what you do when you live here, mm. um, and that we also give an allowance so that there are. The, the children learn from a quite an early age of, I have to budget. If I want to do this, then I have to save up for this many weeks or I can't mm-hmm. spend it on this. And so it teaches children the beginning of money management because they get to make mistakes with the $5 bills so that they don't make mistakes with $100 bills as an adult, right? Yeah. yeah. Do you think there needs to be, this is a bit off, ta- uh, off track, but what the heck, I, I like going off track. Um, <laughs> do you think kids in school need to learn more, you know, like life skills? As, a, as opposed, I mean, you listen, you know, read and write and arithmetic is important, but do you think kids in school maybe need to know more life skills? It seems some, like some kids can't even uh, tell time anymore unless it's a digital clock. Well, I'm a, I guess... Not really your area, but I'm just curious to know... Uh, kids can get away without telling time without a digital clock, right? I think, but I think kids can't get away with... Budgeting with like balancing so, a checkbook for well, you don't even use checks anymore. <laughs> and well, and I think you're recognizing that children have different challenges, right? Till, like it's hard when we had to had mo- had money in our wallets and we had to pay cold hard cash for our the things that we purchase. It was a different feeling than when you pay electronically, and so money can slip through hands much more quickly. That's all make. So children have to learn those message, like learn those lessons. But I think what you're driving at is that some of the hard skills that we call them quote unquote hard, like mm. the the math and the science, that that actually isn't nearly as important as the soft skills of figuring out how to make good decisions and how to relate to other people yeah. and how to negotiate your way in the world. Right. That is tricky and it's vulnerable and it's brave and it's important to figure out how to do that stuff. And that stuff needs to happen at school, at home, everywhere you go. That's why yeah. my kids that's why I put my kids in sports is so that they can learn how to work together with people, how they can learn to sit on the bench when somebody can play better than they can. Mm-hmm. All of those are important life yeah. lessons that prepare these hypothetical and very yeah, real yeah. children to become functioning adults when they get there. Yeah. Here's a good text message from Dean Hal. My sister and I were doing chores around the house and farm from a very early age. I think rural kids have a stronger work at work ethic when they get older just because there is more to do, so the kids help a lot more often. That's from Dean. I don't know if you want to weigh in on that, but I wouldn't argue with you, I Dean. Had, I had a friend who she was, uh, they were on a farm, and she, her kids came home from school, and they said, Mom, those city kids think that emptying the dishwasher is chores. Because <laughs> 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 these kids were getting up at yeah. 6 in the morning to go out to the barn, right? Right. Carolyn Klassen is here from Conexus Counseling. We want to talk now for a minute about your relationship with your boss. There is a new study that says if you have a bad boss, your personality can make things better or worse at work. Sometimes these studies are ridiculous. 
Well, of course, because you're half of the equation. Your personality has to mix with his personality. Right. And so there's a there's we have to think about this carefully because bosses have a position of power over employees. Right. And so they have more ability to influence the relationship than an employee does. That's true. And so the danger is that we blame the employee for something that that cannot be overcome because the boss can just lay down the law and say some things. And that position of power gives them leverage and an advantage to influence the relationship in a way that an employee is powerless to do. And so it's not fair to say if you have a bad relationship with your boss, it's your fault. But it's also, you know, equally doesn't work to say if you have a bad boss, you're doomed to a terrible job because so often we underestimate our ability to influence a situation and to recognize that how we respond to the boss can shape then how the boss responds back to us. Yeah. Now, do you have people come to you uh, and want to talk about their job? I mean, I'm, I'm sure you see that a lot. Eh? Absolutely. Yeah. Many of us spend more time at work than we do with our partners, mm-hmm. right? And so if you, when you have a really close working relationship um, and it's not going well, it absolutely affects. And so some, and that can be very stressful. Yeah. So here's the thing. Often what happens when you are with um, working in a work environment where it feels like somebody doesn't treat you well, where they have values that don't match your own, where they expect you to do things that feel dishonest or feel coercive, where you feel like you don't get to be your best you because the boss expects things out of you that aren't fair. The danger is, is that who the boss tells us that we are, we start to believe that mm. and we start to have how we see ourselves affected by how our boss sees us. And that's where it gets really dangerous. Um, I work with the work of Dr. Brene Brown, and I'm doing that workshop um, that we'll talk about in a couple of minutes. In her book, Braving the Wilderness, she, she writes, stop walking through the world looking for confirmation that you don't belong. You will always find it because you've made that your mission. Stop scouring people's faces for evidence that you're not enough. You will always find it because you've made that your goal. True belonging and self-worth are not goods. We don't negotiate our value with the world. Mm. The truth about who we are lives inside of our hearts. Our call to courage is to protect our wild heart against constant evaluation, especially our own. No one belongs here more than you. So when people can find a way to hold on to their own worth and dignity as human beings, even Mm -hmm. in a situation where our boss is telling us otherwise about who the boss thinks that we are, then we come from a place of groundedness and can respond from a place that has a different sort of strength than when you feel like you're being attacked and you start to believe like you deserve it when you hear it often enough. And that's the challenge is to remain grounded. The reason I asked you about whether or not you see that in your practice is because how do you fix a situation when you've only got half the participants sitting in front of you in your office? Well, you can't fix it, and I don't pretend to fix it, but I would say that I have influenced a lot of people's lives by pe- with through people that I will never have met. Mm. Because when you deal with one person and they become empowered and they can see the situation clearer and understand and get some fresh perspectives, and they become less defensive, and they can figure out how to name the problem rather than just reacting against it, then they come to that relationship in a very different way. And mm. so often they'll come back in later sessions and say, I felt much better after our last conversation and I didn't get as upset and I used a bit of humor or I just didn't get angry and but I also stood my ground in ways that felt honest to me and then the other person couldn't do the same thing that they always do it changes the dance right mm-hmm. because relationships are dances and yes. when one person changes their steps the other person can't but help but to do something different as well there's really no choice yeah 
It's not to say that everything gets fixed automatically, that it's right. only up to one person you to handle make it. the situation differently and better, hopefully. And it influences the way the situation, the way the relationship goes. It mm-hmm. cannot stay the same. I get it, though. You know, if you're in a position where, listen, you need that job, you need mm-hmm. the pay that comes with it. Yep. And if your relationship with your boss is not going well, that's scary to be in a situation like that. So I think any help you can get to try and deal with that sure. supervisor better uh, is is good advice, important advice. It feels really vulnerable when your boss comes at you with certain expectations mm. um, and, and it relates to you in a certain way and you feel like, I'm not sure how much I can stand up to this. Um, and I go back to Viktor Frankl, who was a psychiatrist who was Jewish in World War II, and he ended up being in a concentration camp. He lost family members um, to the Holocaust, and um, he was a psychiatrist to the other uh, prisoners of war that were also Jewish and struggling. Mm. And he said, we cannot choose our circumstances, but we can choose our attitude. And he really worked to with those other prisoners of war to have people find little microwaves of finding humor in a way in an, in an environment that was alt- otherwise just horrific right. to find ways of coping and surviving to find little ways of of standing up and saying you can't do this to me um, in ways that still kept them safe when they had so little power he really worked to have people say you can be who you really are you can still be you in horrific circumstances and you can emerge out of that situation in a, a stronger person We're going to talk more about this as the workshop gets closer. The workshop is coming up November 16th to 18th. You can find out more at connexuscounseling.ca. But Carolyn's got a rising strong workshop. Essentially, what is it, Carolyn? So essentially, it's for people who have undergone some sort of fall or transition they found difficult. So maybe somebody in your life died. Maybe you changed jobs. Uh, maybe something happened that there just felt like it was a crash in your life and you've had trouble figuring out how to make sense of it and moving forward in a way that doesn't leave you stuck mm. or hung up or triggered so that you have trouble moving forward and feeling good about where you are in life. We've had lots of interest. The early bird um, rate ends tomorrow, so we encourage you to register soon so that we can make sure that you can have a spot. It's just a chance to look th- look through that experience, through various ways and tools and strategies that we will give you, we'll share together. Everybody gets to do it in a way that works for them. And it's a chance for you to reauthor that story so that you aren't the victim, the villain, or even the hero of that story, but that you get to be the author of your story. Connexuscounseling.ca. Get signed up by tomorrow for that early bird price, and then we'll talk more about the workshop as we go along. Carolyn will be here again next Thursday. Carolyn Klassen, thank you. Thank you. Connexus Counseling, Carolyn Klassen, every Thursday. Hal Anderson Afternoons, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.